Hey everybody, this is Richard Deitch, and welcome to the Sports Media Podcast. My producer, as always, is Lee Pellegrino. Uh, three guests this week, three segments. I think you're going to enjoy all of them. First up, it is Turner Sports and Fox Sports soccer host Kate Abdow. Uh, she's been doing some sensational work for Fox, for Turner, and, uh, and I think you're going to enjoy that conversation. Super smart, speaks four languages, very, very interesting woman. After that, Boston Globe media writer Chad Finn and I have a discussion on the World Series viewership and surprisingly down from last year's viewership in every game despite the classic matchup between the Red Sox and the Dodgers. We'll also talk about the Monday Night Football broadcast crew and why it has just not worked so far. So Chad Finn after Kate Abdow, and then we finish up with Detroit Free Press sports columnist Mitch Alblom. Uh, we'll talk about his new book, The Next Person You Meet in Heaven. That's the sequel to The Five People You Meet in Heaven. But beyond that, Mitch talking about what sporting events still interest him as a writer, what sports figure in Michigan he finds the most compelling, and whether he misses being on ESPN as the sports reporters has now been off the air for a couple of years. So Kate Abdow, Chad Finn, and Mitch Album all coming up on the Sports Media Podcast. <laughs> Our guest this week, someone soccer fans in the States know very well, Kate Abdo is the studio host for Turner and Bleacher Reports UEFA Champions League coverage. She's also a studio host for Fox Sports' soccer programming. You saw her during the World Cup. She is, as they say in Boston, pretty wicked smart, fluent in four languages, French, Spanish, German, and English. So bonjour, hola, guten morgen, hello. Um... <laughs> Kate, Kate Abdel, welcome to the Sports Media Podcast. And before we start, Kate, my, I really want to know how badly your back hurts from carrying Alexi Lalas for the last couple of years. <laughs> uh, good morning. Uh, it's fantastic to be on the podcast. <laughs> Thank you for having me. You're welcome. Um, all right. So let's, um, let's start with uh, Turner. I, eventually, I want to go into uh, working for two different places and what's different about the two. But um, I want to start off with how, given that you've worked for multiple organizations in multiple countries, and particularly with the emphasis on soccer broadcasting, um, in your in your own words, in your own mind, how would you illustrate uh, or view what Turner is trying to do with their Champions League coverage? Um, I, I think the the two words that kind of jump out to me in terms of what we're looking for is is fresh and relevant. Um, so I think we're, we're trying to do things in a way that is, that just, you know, soccer formats have been the same for years and years and, and, and decades, um, you know, throughout Europe. And then I think that European model was often transferred to, um, to the United States because football or soccer was seen as a European property. Um, and often the talent on it was also transferred from Europe as well. And so I think that, um, Turner are looking for for the network to take some ownership of soccer to make it feel relevant to an American audience to make it feel like a fresh approach not the same staid European model that we've all seen for decades um, so I think those are the two things that we're really looking to do so there are, we you know we now cater in an era where we see a lot of people working for multiple places uh, Fox in particular has a lot of talent on air talent that is shared with other places. Alex Rodriguez, very prominently on Fox and ESPN, and you prominently work for Fox, but also now work for Turner. So how does that work? Um, is it complicated to get 
everyone on board contractually, et cetera, where you can be working for two different places who at times in theory um, could be competitors. Yeah, I think that was hugely generous of Fox. And I, I'll be honest, I was slightly surprised that they were as accommodating as they were. So that uh, I think, you know, when I joined Fox, they definitely had a much bigger presence in soccer than they do now. Obviously, losing the Champions League rights was a, was a big blow for them. Um, and I think they were just very fair uh, in, in saying, OK, we haven't got this to offer you. You've been offered it somewhere else. Uh, and I think they have a kind of a very grown up mentality that not all networks have that, you know, if it's if it's good for your profile and it's good for your name in terms of within that soccer world in America, then it benefits us as well because then you're you're seen as a, a more key figure within soccer in America. And if you're on our programming, that's a good thing for us too. Um, I don't think it was hugely complicated in, in that there isn't really an overlap. The programming that I do for Fox is never on on the same days nor at the same time as the programming on Champions League for Turner. So there's no huge issue there. Um, and so I think both networks managed to find a way to make that work relatively easily. How does it work specifically, Kate? Does, um, does Turner contact Fox? Does Turner contact your agency and then you talk to Fox uh, without obviously going so in-depth into contractual terms? How did, how did, how did it specifically happen where, um, uh, in terms of them reaching out to you and you ultimately ending up uh, with Turner? You know, I'm trying to remember that. Um, I, I actually can't remember. I don't know. I think it probably went through my agent. Um, I mean, it, you know, I'm I'm crazy about soccer, and as soon as I'd heard that Turner had won the Champions League rights, I thought, well, that's interesting because obviously I watch their other programming, and I think they do a fantastic job. Um, but it, you know, frankly, I probably never really assumed that it would be possible to to do the both. Um, and so I think that initially all went through my agent and kind of feeling out whether there would be any room to make that possible or not. You are British. You were born in Manchester, I think. Uh, amazing, amazing town, music town, especially. Um, and so you are schooled there and you, uh, if I remember correctly from just doing a little bit of research, you're, you're majoring or at least as we would say, majoring in basically languages and journalism. And at a certain point after graduation, you start getting involved with sports coverage. So um, how did that happen? What, what, what was your earliest job and what was the – and is it – for those of for, – for the people who are listening to this in the States, is it a similar career path in terms of it's not necessarily easy to get a job in sports broadcasting because they're inevitably more um, – you know, more supply than demand, more people who want to be in the business than ultimately there are jobs. Um, yeah, the, the journey at the beginning was slightly different in that I actually left the UK when I was 17. I was, I, I just had itchy feet. I wanted to learn languages. I wanted to travel. I wanted to experience different things. And I hadn't been able to learn Spanish at school. It wasn't an option. So I said, I'm just going to move to Spain. I uh, work in a bar or cafe there for a year and kind of fund myself and, and do lessons and live with a Spanish family and learn the language that way. So I did that for a year. Um, and I think six months in, I decided, you know what, I really like this. I don't want to go back to the UK. Manchester's weather is, is not the best. Um, <laughs> and it was just a very different lifestyle that I was enjoying in Spain. So I decided to do my high school diploma. Um, so I learned Spanish for six months, did a high school diploma for six months, and then uh, got entry into university. And actually, I did my degree over there. So I studied translation and interpreting, but I studied them in a Spanish university. Um, so that was where I graduated from. And then I, 
I kind of put a break in the middle of that part of the a, a languages course in the UK has always been that you go and spend time in the countries of the languages that you were studying because they just see it as an important part of the process. That wasn't part of the process in Spain and I felt like it was missing, but you are able to stop and start your degree as you wish. So I, I put it on hold for a year. I went and lived in, in Germany for six months and then in France for six months. Then I came back, finished my degree. Um, and then from there, I was offered a, an internship. I was actually just helping out a German professor who needed someone to do correspondence for him. And it was a kind of a side job for me um, to earn a little bit of extra cash on the side. And he said to me, look, I know people that are, he said, you know what you want to do? And I said, no, I've got, I've got no idea. I have no idea what I want to do. I like languages. That's all I know. I think I'm relatively good at them. Um, and I just didn't really have a direction at that point. And he said, well, I know a, a German TV station, they take on interns, you translate the content. It was like a German public service. So they broadcast in German, Spanish, English, Arabic. So three of the four languages that I spoke. And he mm. said, you know, it's not great pay, but it's a good into translation and interpreting and to see what you like and what you don't like, because you're living in Germany, which you like. Um, so I, I took on that internship. I moved to Berlin and I'd been there about, I think about six months. Um, at which point I'd been, I'd started off on the business desk, which was not my natural home, um, talking about stocks and shares in another language. Uh, and so I kept on pushing to be moved to the sports desk, which felt like a much more natural home for me. I was interested in it. I'd grown up with sports. Um, I'd done a lot of sports. My parents are both sports teachers, so that was always kind of a, a huge part of life. Um, and one day, one of the sports hosts had a kind of a big bust up, stormed out, said he was never coming back. And the head of the station came to me and said, look, we're going to, we need a quick solution here. We need people who know the system and can write scripts. And we know that you can do both of those things. Uh, we'd like you to do a casting. And I said, absolutely not. I've got no desire to be in front of camera. And I refused to do the casting. Um, I was very shy. I just, it, it was just not something that felt like my calling. Um, so I refused. They did a round of castings. They didn't find anybody they liked. They came back and he said, look, just, just do me a favor. Just do the casting. If it's terrible, we'll never talk about it again. Um, and so they bugged me until I did this casting, which I thought was horrible. Um, and then in the back, they came and said to me, look, we'll, we'd like to offer you the job. Um, we'll give you a day's training uh, on how to do live television. And then you'll start doing the news, um, the sports news. So it was like a, you had a five-day week and you did um, sports bulletins within a, a rolling news network. So you're on air every two hours to do your sports bulletin. And that was kind of how it started. I always feel embarrassed by that because like you say, it's so oversubscribed. There are so many people who, who want to be part of this industry and, and see it as such a privilege, which it is, um, to be able to talk about sports for a living. And I, I don't know that I have the answers to what's the best journey, what's the best way in, because mine was completely circumstantial and really not not a door that I was knocking on at all um I you know I feel really blessed that it happened that way and I I love the job now and I wouldn't change it um and I feel like it, it feels actually like a lot of the jobs that I've had have often come that way they've they've fallen to me rather than me pushing for them which makes me very fortunate um I do feel that I work hard when I get the opportunity but I, I've also certainly been blessed by being in the right time in the right place. Yeah, first of all, a couple of things there. I love the fact that Europeans always, um, um, they have that itch and they take off from wherever they live and ultimately live in other uh, countries very, very different from the states uh, where kids are sort of pushed uh, to go a certain route, usually college, et cetera. And then the other thing, obviously, you know, sometimes fortune just happens 
um, for you. And, you know, somebody storms out, you get an opportunity. And from that opportunity, amazing things happen. Um, before uh, we get into sort of how you ended up in soccer, you um, – no, well, let's start with that. Okay, so you're you get an opportunity, you move to the sports desk. Where does the where does the sort of specificity for soccer start? Well, I mean, European sport, European sports is predominantly soccer. There's not much else. Right. Yes, we have rugby, cricket. I mean, that's actually very British rather than than European. So if you're in Europe, if you're in Germany, for example, it really is only ninety percent soccer and then maybe there's a few people who are interested in some basketball, some handball, but it, it's a real smattering of other sports. So being on the sports desk meant in that case it actually meant Bundesliga. Um so I, I started with German soccer. And that was what we talked about predominantly for the ninety minutes. I mean if there was a big national international event going on, Olympics or whatever that might be, obviously there was interest in that too, but but the real focus was was soccer from the beginning. So one of the things that um, I wanted to talk to you about when um, when I you know when I when you finally committed to do this podcast, Kate, uh, that is um, you've worked for <laughs> you've worked for many different places, um, including American outlets. So I'm probably going to mispronounce this name, but you, Deutsch. Deutsch Welle? How would I, I, my German is obviously terrible. How, how would you, how would you <laughs> Deutsche, pronounce that? Deutsche Welle. But the easier version Deu- is DWTV. That's it. For someone whose last name is Deutsch, that's beyond embarrassing. Deutsche Welle. Okay. Uh, so you worked at CNN globally. You worked at Sky Deutschland. You worked at Sky Sports. You've worked at multiple global outlets. And now, obviously, you've worked at Fox and Turner. Something that's always been fascinating fascinating to me as someone who's um, traveled abroad and covered many different Olympics, just my own interpretation of the differences between um, how sports is covered in other countries, how they, how they sort of even um, uh, perceive the role of rooting versus objectivity in certain countries and not other countries. So as a, I want to take a couple of different places. First off, in your impression, what is the difference in terms of sports coverage in Germany versus the States, and then I would want you to do the same thing with the UK. Um, I, to my mind, you know, obviously I'm European, and, and that European coverage feels very like home to me. Um, but German television definitely is much more buttoned up. Uh, you know, I, I, think, I think the Germans do have a sense of humor, and they do, they do want that to come across on television, but there's there's a, just a real kind of conservativeness, if that's a word, to the way they do television. Um, and I think it's actually the network that I that I then worked for. So the first network was DWTV, which was German. The second network that I worked for in Germany, which is after I'd been at CNN, was um, a network called Sky Sports that was launching its own 24-hour sports news channel. And so I was there in this kind of startup process. And I, I, I got a real insight into the German mentality in terms of what they wanted to be. Um, which was, you know, basically based on the American television model, a lot of personality, a, a real sense of fun to a broadcast and, and balancing that out with the informational aspect that you're wanting to give. Um, and then balancing that with what they felt they could be, um, which was limited by their Germanness in the, in their point of view. You know, we were looking at a show, um, there's a show on Sky Sports in the UK called Soccer Saturday, which they thought was fantastic. And that's very much a personality based show. And it is a very good show. Um, but they just said, we don't, we don't have those personalities in Germany. We, we can't aspire to do that. So they set a lot of limitations upon themselves. 
Um, I, I think in the UK, there's a there's a real sense of humor that's present, but it's a very different sense of humor to the one that you would get in the States. You know, it's very dry, it's very ironic. And um, we are, again, there's a, there's a certain... There's a side to that that we share with the Germans and that I think we want to have a lot of fun on air, but we are very self-conscious and we're reserved hmm. and you have to kind of be able to get past that or be a very extroverted character in the first place to be able to to do that kind of personality-led television. And it's always what has fascinated me about American TV is just the the ease with which Americans do personality-led television. They have no problem putting themselves out there. They have no problem... Um, being more extroverted, being louder, being more controversial, being more debative. A lot of those things that make for, as a viewer, frequently when it's genuine and authentic, interesting viewing. Um, and so I think I have really enjoyed just the freedom that you get a bit more in, in formats. Obviously, soccer formats are still relatively busted up in America as well because you're going through a process of building up to a game. Um, but it definitely at Turner, I think they're allowing much more room for, for personality uh, and much more space for that. You know, not everything is pre-planned in a, in a pre-game. There's, there's definitely some space that's just left for, let's see what happens at this point. And I love that approach. It's something that I really value about American television and American producers. Kate, do you, one of the things that you've obviously seen here is um, certain times there, the nexus of sports and politics emerge on sports networks uh i think clearly certainly espn will do more of that than you'll see on fs1 or nbc sports but it does happen um in your experiences abroad um german sports television uh uk sports television will they go into that area if the story warrants it or are they really strictly sports and the news desk handles the politics and social issues etc yeah, I think as a rule, definitely the latter. But I think it's difficult to make that comparison because I'm not sure I can think of a parallel to, um, for example, the Taking the Knee movement where you have that natural crossover of sports and politics. So I don't know that I've ever seen a, a UK or a German or a European network I exposed to that where they need to find a solution of, well, this is a sports issue, but it's also a political issue. And where do right. we position ourselves? One of the things that... Um one of the things that's very apparent if you read the UK tabloids is the way they uh, often write about women sports broadcasters. For interest, for um, for example, in terms of, and you know very well about this. For example, when I was doing research on you and reading stuff, one of the things I saw in the Daily Mail in a write-up of you, in addition to obviously your credentials as a soccer journalist. They mentioned where you finished in a sexiest sports broadcaster contest. Like they literally did that in the middle of like a straight piece. Now I realize, listen, the Daily Mail is where did it is. I finish it's out of interest? I believe ninth. Sorry about that. Um, <laughs> uh, but uh, so um, so I guess, and, and this is not very uncommon for the tabs, where it's very sexualized and. Um, very focused on appearance and looks as opposed to um, broadcasting skill, merit, et cetera. So that, that's, a, that's a sort of preamble to ask you. Could you give listeners sort of the difference in your opinion of how sports broadcasters are perceived and treated in each of the different countries that you've been in? And by the way, this is not to somehow put Pollyanna notions on the U.S., which has its own uh, issues in this area too. Uh, it does, but I think there's – 
there's really no argument that the U.S. is um, bounds ahead of many other European networks in that sense. Um, just, you know, in the last, God, I can't remember, I think last couple of months, I think we saw that all-female broadcast on on Fox. I have my own ideas about that. I don't know. I, I, I think that there should be, I think women should be put in a position because they deserve it. And I'm not saying any of those women didn't. I think they absolutely do. But I, I, I don't want to make it into a gimmick, I suppose, is what I'm saying. But I love the fact that they were standing strong behind female broadcasters and saying, look, um, these ladies do a fantastic job for us. They really know their stuff. And it's perfectly valid for there to be an all-female broadcast around a, a men's game if the, the women can hold their own and they can give us insight and give us everything that we respect from a, a group of men performing the same broadcast. Um, I prefer that to be a natural progression rather than something that we push for and we just see women coming through naturally because they're, they're qualified and they are better than the men that were also in line for that role. Um, but I do love the, the thought behind it. Um, I do think Europe is, is somewhat behind that. I mean, the tabloids aren't necessarily representative of how everybody approaches the female broadcasters and, and what they think of them. I think um, for some reason in the UK, that seems particularly prevalent, that attitude. I think that there haven't been enough females who have been in prominent roles, uh, particularly around soccer. It's still there's still a, a real sense of guarding it and as a kind of a very traditional male sphere. And I understand that, Obviously, you know, you're talking about the men's game, so you want the insight from the men's game as well. I want to, to talk to people who've been inside the Chelsea locker room, who've been in those experiences with those teammates and know how that male mentality is within that within that game. And so I understand the the enormous value of, of having male analysts, but I think you could certainly have more female hosts than we than we necessarily do on the top properties in the UK. Um, you know, Premier League, I, I can't really think of one who hosts the coverage. But when I was taken on at Sky, I was actually taken on to host the Champions League, which was really exciting because they hadn't positioned a female on that before. Um, mm. uh, unfortunately, they lost the Champions League rights and that never materialized. But um, I was excited at least that they were thinking of that. They have also very recently hired Alex Scott, who's a former uh, English national team player, and she's also um, functioning as an analyst on on the Sky Sports programming around the Premier League, which I think is exciting to add a female voice into that because it's certainly something I think actually even I had to have my my mind open to, and that was it was open to by America, I think, because I saw Ali Wagner being an analyst on Champions League for Fox, and I thought, wow, she. She's massively done her homework. She's been and spent time with Marisi Pochettino and, and Tottenham and really got an understanding for the European game and for the male game as well. And she adds analyst, analyst that, analysis sorry, that is just as, um, just as valid and just as strong and just as interesting and actually comes from a different, different perspective. And I like it. Uh, I like that we have a different voice on that. Um, so I think that Europe in general has a long way to go. And I think that, that America is definitely setting the pace, but I do think there are at least improvements. Um, and I have to say, I don't think it's not something that I personally can complain of. I don't think I've ever struggled to get a role or struggled to get a position because I'm a female. I am strongly of the belief that if you're good enough and if you walk into a room and you can convince people, okay, she's qualified and she definitely knows what she's talking about, then, then you should, you should have no concern about being a female. Um, and so I think as long as you're as good as you need to be, it's just not an issue. How much uh, sexism have you faced in the business? You know, I don't really feel that I have. Um, and I, I think 
I've often tried to, to, to figure out why that is, because I know that it is something that lots of um, females do encounter in the business. Perhaps I've just been fortunate with the, you know, the environments I've been in and the people that I've been surrounded by. Um, I, I do think that, that yeah, I, I, I just can't figure out why it has been. It's not something that I've personally encountered. And so it's not something that I can complain of or say that was, you know, really been something that I've had to fight against. Um, I support all women who do have to fight against that. I, I just think that, you know, in, in any job, you can often have people who undermine you for whatever reason. And in soccer, it's definitely very prevalent that, you know, if you're a female, that that's seen as you not having a clue traditionally. How could you understand this game? Um, but I, I do think that the as long as you bring to the table what you need to bring to the table, nobody can question you and you can find your own security within that. Uh you sort of, I mean, you, you sort of touched on this a little bit, but I do want to ask it direct. Do you think, um, or what do you think it says that right now in the States, uh, you are hosting Champions League coverage and Rebecca Lowe is essentially the host or face of NBC's Premier League coverage. So this arguably, other than the World Cup, the two biggest soccer properties globally, and certainly the two of the three biggest soccer properties that are part of the United States, and two of those entities are hosted or fronted by women um well hopefully it says that we were the best candidates for what we do um you know i i i really admire rebecca's work i watch her on premier league and i think she's fantastic at what she does she leads that show really well um so just as a viewer i i think she does a great job and i'm sure that that's what nbc has seen with her and and you know there's no doubt that it's nice to have a balance uh, within a room and so if you're talking about Premier League and you've got felt former Premier League players as your analyst then then it's not a bad thing to have a, a female perspective within that crew as well um, but I think both she and her would, would likely have the same approach in terms of why we got the job and, and why we think we deserve those jobs. I think there's no doubt that as a woman you know thinking back when I was offered the role at CNN I'd had a, an interview process in in America and a casting process in America and had come through that and then they uh, based me in London and I went in and met with the crew in London for the first time and it was an all-male sports department I was the only girl and they said oh well, you know welcome aboard let's take you out for lunch we all want to get to know you so we went out for lunch and I felt like I was drilled and I was questioned in a way that was definitely to try and figure out does this girl know anything about football does this girl know anything about sports in a way that I was fully aware if I was a guy that would be absolutely assumed you would never pose me any of these questions. You'd, you'd ask me about me. You'd want to get to know me genuinely, but you wouldn't think that you needed to test out whether I actually had a clue and whether I'd come through the interview process for the right reason. So I think that that does still happen. I think as a, a man, it's assumed that you have the, the needed knowledge, and as a female, you have to prove that. Um, it's part of the process. It's, a, it's an unfortunate part of the process that we're still there in 2018, but at least we've come a long way, and at least we're getting a chance to be at that same table. Okay, what are um, what are the differences between working for Fox Sports and Turner Sports, and what would you say are the similarities between those two media outlets? Um, you know, the differences is I think obviously for Turner, this is a new venture, um, so this is a, a first outing in soccer. Uh, whereas Fox has got a, you know, a much longer history in the game. So um, there's, there's two sides to that. Number one, you're trying to find your feet in a, in a sport that you've, you've not covered before and with an audience that you haven't engaged with before. So that's all new. Um, I also think there's, there's something fantastic about being new to something because you can completely reinvent the wheel. You can find your own approach. You don't feel 
you don't feel that you have to be loyal to the way that we've done it for the last however many years because you've never done it before. So it's a, it's a, a blank sheet, um, which is a fantastic thing to have. I think um, the difference in Turner's approach, I, I think they have definitely tried to take, well, actually that's something that Fox has done as well, is try to, to find more American voices because I think in the past in the U.S., uh, if I'm not mistaken, there was a real tendency to go um, very strongly with European voices on the game because they were felt to have the national, the natural authority. And I think both Fox and Turner have tried to um, to definitely give that coverage a more American feel. And uh, Turner, very much so that's the case. I think Tim Howard has been a really brilliant hire. Um, he's a wonderful name within the game. You know, he's very respected. He has a real natural authority when he speaks about the game. He's got that kind of star power internationally, not just in in the United States. And I think it's great to see new names like that emerging, hiring Moa Du as well, who's, you know, a really interesting um, young talent within, you know, American broadcasting. He's new to it, but I think the fact that you are the fact that you are seeing a Turner and a and a Fox all all try and use him on their broadcast shows that everybody sees a lot of potential there for him to be a really interesting and a and a leading voice within analysis on soccer in the United States. So I really enjoyed that kind of engaging with those more American voices within the game. And because it's a different experience of the game, it's a different journey into the, the top echelons of the game. And so that's been fantastic to kind of connect our audience with that. I think one of the things that uh, we often talk about in this podcast is process. I think uh, a lot of young uh, people either in just starting out in their careers or maybe in college who listen to this and they want to, get a sense of how the people who are in jobs that they would ultimately love to get do what they do. So um, let's just sort of take a, 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 a week when, um, when you are at Turner. What, what's, a, what, what's the work le- week like for you in terms of preparation, travel, and being on the air? Yeah, I suppose I kind of feel like my, my Turner week starts on a Sunday. So on a Sunday, I would work for Fox in the morning doing Bundesliga. I'll often come back and have a nap because those are awfully early starts. Um, yep. But at some point on the Sunday morning as well, we will have a conference call with Turner um, because by that point, you feel that the majority of the, the European action that weekend has happened. So you can update any of the big storylines within the, the rundown. And uh, a group of us, Stu Holden, uh, myself, the show producer, the executive producer, and um, one of the, the guys from Turner will all have a group call where we'll kind of go through the rundown as it is set and talk through any ideas and what things that we think we may need to change or we'd like to do differently. Um, so there's that kind of creative process that happens on a Sunday. Then the rest of the Sunday will be used to me for, for research, for prep. I'm, I'm very prep heavy. I I definitely like to be over-prepped rather than under-prepped. Um, Monday is my travel day, so I'll always fly to Atlanta. And again, I have a good five hours on the plane there that I can use to to delve deeper into some of the stories. Because, you know, over the weekends, I'm very much focused on German soccer for Fox. So then you kind of, you can, the other leagues can slip by a bit. So it, it takes a while to kind of get back to grips with what happened in, in France, what happened in Spain, what happened in, in, you know, these other major leagues that you're in Italy that you're looking at. Um, and so Monday, again, I, I see as a prep day. And then Tuesday starts pretty early. I'm, I'm in makeup at seven because that's a lengthy process, Richard. Um, I'm in makeup at seven. We'll have a production meeting at 10 uh, where we will connect with LA because obviously that's a, you know, another thing that we're contending with is having those two studios. So we will Skype into to LA to kind of feel like we're all in the same room with, with Stu, Steve, and the guys who are in production over there. 
and just go through that that rundown again so that everybody in the room has the benefit of it and also so that everybody in the room has the benefit of contributing I think that's something I learned when I um when I had first decided that I was joining Turner and that had gone through they invited me to um go and shadow on inside the MBA and, and the whole process that they have and I found that really interesting the tone that you know Ernie Johnson set in that room whereby everybody felt that they had a voice everybody who was in the crew was part of the show and so you know I think soccer is perhaps a newer sport for some of the people that we have in that room but but we want their ideas they're good tv people and a lot of them are soccer fans so we also want to hear what they're thinking what's interesting for them because it it always helps you to kind of step out of that bubble and, and be reminded what's interesting for for another person and and therefore for your audience um so I think we try and make that a collaborative process we'll then move to rehearsal We'll do a rehearsal, but in a, a relative, it's a different, that's one of the main differences, I think, between Fox and, and Turner is that Turner are very rehearsal light. I think on Inside the NBA, you know, the only person that really rehearses anything is, is Ernie in terms of ins and outs of a couple of things. And then the talent come on completely fresh. You know, we're very new to this uh, and we're still going through kind of a, a process of putting the show together. So we will rehearse a little bit more but what we don't do is rehearse those conversations I don't want to know what Tim has to say about something or Mo or, or any of those guys and I think they also want it to be a fresh answer the first time they give it whereas I think that often um, Fox feels a little bit more pre-planned in terms of uh, which direction we're going with arguments and as a host that can be helpful as well because I know that you know, Alexia is strong on this but Warren is strong on that so let me guide it that way it's two different roles one is very reactive. One is more facilitating of, of of the people I have on the desk and what I know that they feel strongly about. So it, it's mutating between two different approaches to TV. I think I've learned from both of them, um, but, but it's been interesting to see the different way that they both approach those things. Did you uh, enjoy your time with uh, Barkley? It was always fun to uh, be around. Yeah, I mean, those guys are great. And that's, that's fascinating to watch how that show comes together because it is so based on the chemistry of, of those at the desk. I, you know, I, I suppose probably I was more drawn to watching Ernie just because, I, you know, there's a parallel there in terms of the role that he has and the role that I would, you know, I'd love to do half as good a job as he does. Um, and I think that um, it was just interesting to, to watch how he, he's very focused. He's very dialed in. And for all the madness that is going on around him, he never loses his way. And I, I had a huge amount of, respect for just how focused he said because what you know we're there for an awfully long time and you know of course we're having fun and we're messing around at the same time but we're trying to watch eight games of or six games of football at, at any given time um and I just had a huge amount of admiration for how he very much stayed on the ball and stayed, stayed dialed in for that time and also managed to, to figure out how to get the best out of those people around him um so that was what I stayed focused on all right a couple more here what's um Okay, what's your assessment of where the Bundesliga is in the United States in terms of interest, in terms of potentially growing interest? Where do you think where do you think that league right now stands in terms of the uh, consciousness of the soccer fan in the states? I think it's always struggled by comparison. Uh, you know, if we're honest, it, it definitely has because yes, you have Bayern Munich, which is a big name and which resonates, but I think you know, other than that, other than Dortmund, perhaps you've not really had a, a name that creates international interest or really moves the needle internationally. And it's been a while since Dortmund have. I actually think that this is a season that they could do. In fact, this could be a really positive season for the Bundesliga in that sense. But it's, 
it's always missed. You know, I think the Premier League was the first to kind of spread its wings and, and have that more international presence and international interest. So it's always been, uh, it's always had a head start on the other European leagues. La Liga, you know, soared to prominence simply because of Real Madrid, Barcelona, Ronaldo, Messi in more recent times. You know, that's always been a fascinating battle between the two. Um, and La Liga, uh, Serie A, I think, has, it had, it had died off for a while there. It had, you know, it had a, a real heyday in the in the 80s, 90s maybe, and then now it had really drawn less interest over the last decade or so. But Cristiano Ronaldo moving there has undoubtedly um, made it a much more interesting league again, just to see what what he can do. You know, what does having Cristiano Ronaldo in your ranks do in terms of your your ability to to take that step that you've to make the hurdle that you've fallen at the last couple of times and actually win the Champions League, which is obviously what Juventus wants to do. What um, what was your biggest takeaway from working the World Cup um, in the States? Uh, you probably, I mean, I, I imagine you've, know, given your um, sort of international resume, you, you probably have been, you had probably been to Russia before, but what was that, what was your takeaway from doing a, um, a essentially month-long event one in that country and two, obviously, arguably, along with the Olympics, the biggest event a sports broadcaster can do. Yeah, I think you're right. Just in terms of, of going to the World Cup, I was so excited about that because I think it's one of the ones that if you're if you're working in, in soccer, it's one of the things you want to take off on your resume. It feels like the absolute pinnacle along with Champions League. Those are the two that you, you're really excited to be at the front of. Um, and so I think, first of all, just a huge privilege to even have, have been there and been part of it, you know, to see the resources that, that Fox put into that and the, the budget that they threw at that event was impressive to me as a European because we do things very differently. And we just, networks just simply don't have the same amount of budget. Um, I, I, it, you know, it felt long. It's an intense experience. I think you forget that when you're watching it as a viewer uh, at times because you have to, you know, the privilege of, of dipping in and dipping out when you want to and then probably watch more intensely as the competition carries on. But, uh, you know, it definitely felt like a long time to be there. I think Russia is a really interesting, fascinating country, actually. I had been there before, but I hadn't been to Moscow. And there's, there's so much culture and it's just an interesting time. If you, you know, you've worked a really long day to just be able to walk back to the hotel and walk through some of that architecture and, and everything is, is incredible. Um, I'm a perfectionist. I, you know, I, I, there are probably things I, I would have liked to have done differently on that tournament, but I think that's probably all of us, you know, and there was certainly some difficulties that were unique to Russia um, that led to some areas where I felt the coverage could have could have gone differently. Um, but I think all in all, you know, we did a solid job. Did you uh, you happen to go to the subways in Moscow, Stalin era subways? I did, never yeah, seen, no, it, amazing. Yeah, never seen anything like they're, that. They're almost yeah. like an art exhibition in some ways, yep. right? It's incredible. Yeah, that it is. I've been uh, to Sochi and Moscow. It's a fascinating country, uh, and to go as an American, doubly fascinating. And I will say, it's a bit of a cliche, but those under thirty, thirty-five, um, were really interested in talking to Americans and wanted to engage. Those over thirty-five, very, very different situation. So it's. it's I'm glad I went. I'm not sure how much I want to necessarily go back, but it was. Uh, it was. I'm glad I did it. It was. It's a very interesting. Uh, it's an interesting place. Um, Okay, here's the last couple I want to um, to get to you. You um, you are Muslim, and um, having talked to a lot of um, Muslim sports broadcasters, last year I did a roundtable with uh, 
seven of them. And it was really interesting to, um, to get their insights, uh, into uh, this is really when the dialogue in the U.S. and Muslims and Islam was really getting heated, and it was interesting to just get their experiences on discrimination and repression in their job, etc. What what I do want to ask you though is, and this is something Adnan Verk uh, at ESPN told me that in the last couple of years he decided to be more public um, about his, you know, who he was and and what his religion is, and it was mostly to um, to maybe educate the U.S. sports viewer who might not have ever met anyone Muslim. So I wanted to just ask you as sort of just a general overall question, Kate, um, you know, how do you approach, how do you approach that? Is that something you ever discuss in either interviews? You're probably not going to discuss it on air, but, um, how does that relate just in terms of who you are as a public sports broadcasting person? Um, I, I'm not sure that there's much crossover into that sphere. It's not, it's not something that, um, it's not something I've ever hidden. I'm very, and you know, anybody who meets me probably knows that. Um, but I, I don't think it's something that's ever really had occasion to come up in interviews. It's not something that um, that most people tend to know. Uh, it's it's something that I'm I'm proud of. It's it's definitely been a real positive in my life. Um, it's not something that I would ever feel I would ever shy away from talking about or feel uncomfortable talking about. I'm. You know, of course, I'm sensitive to the fact that the impression of Islam that a, a lot of people in the West have doesn't in any way match up to what Islam has meant to me and my understanding of it. And I think there's a real disconnect there. And I'd love for it to be viewed differently, but also understand where those misunderstandings come from, very obviously. Um, uh, or maybe not even misunderstandings, but different perceptions. Um, and so I, I think... You know, I, I always find that disappointing that something that is such a positive in my life is, is viewed in many cases with, with hostility. Um, right. But, you know, I, I do think it's, it's interesting that people want to be more open about it because uh, I think, you know, the one type of Islam that you often see in the news is um, the, the Islam that it doesn't connect for me, that doesn't make any sense, that doesn't add up to, to what I understand of the religion, which is a peaceful religion. Um, which has has helped me be more at peace within myself. Um, and so I think it's, you know, it's important that there's another vision, another face of Islam that is out there. So, so yeah, I, I completely understand that. I, I don't really know how it crosses over or how it kind of um, it becomes into, how there's space for it to come into what I do in sports broadcasting, but I think probably just by being open with it. You know, one of the things I really appreciated about Sky was that there was a, there was a prayer room and I would often do very long days there. So I would actually uh, go to the prayer room and, and, and do my prayers at, at work, which mm. was a, a really nice space to have. And on a Friday, a lot of the Muslims would do that uh, jointly. Um, and so I really, I enjoyed the fact that that was, that was seen as an important space to give. Islam and to just to give people to be able to express their religious uh, their religious beliefs. Do you do that at Fox at all? I don't know if you are you work do you work Friday? I'm trying to think of the, your schedule if you'd be working there on a on a Friday because I know you work midweek in Atlanta. Uh, yeah, I don't actually. I, I, I was at you know I was at Sky five days a week and so uh, minimum right. often and so it was often uh, it felt like part of the process that I needed to be able to get done there at, at Fox. My hours are so strange. I'm there so early in the morning. You know, I'm generally done by eight a.m. Um, that I can I can find other space to do that, and also I have a private dressing room, which is something I didn't have at, at Sky, and you know I would never assume to do something like that in a in a public dressing room because I feel like 
you know, you can make other people feel uncomfortable. Well, you know, I wouldn't feel uncomfortable if a Christian was praying in my dressing room. I just think you need to be conscious that not everybody's comfortable with everything. Um, but having a private dressing room gives me the opportunity to do that when and where I want at Fox as well, yeah. Nice, private dressing room. All right, finally, Shanks Shanks is doing something right. I, I like seeing this. Um, what one one last one on this, um, just because of the time of the year, it's interesting. And so, and and again, if it's not something you want to go into, I I understand, but I but I am curious. Um, for Ramadan, which um takes place, I think in if I'm right about this, like the end of May to June, that could cross over, um, in terms of your soccer work. So I wonder how you um ha- has that ever come up? How do you approach that? Have you fasted, let's say, when you were uh, when you might have a heavy soccer broadcasting schedule? Yeah, no, I've had that a lot. I had it during um, the, I think my first experience of that really was the, I mean, I've always worked on and off during the summer, but often summer is off season. So often you have, you know, the privilege of not having to work too intensely. Women's World Cup in Vancouver. Um, I, I was on Ramadan and, you know, the days in Vancouver are incredibly long. I think the sun went down at yep. it. 9.30, 10 p.m. So there were long days to wait to have that food and water for sure. And it's a real mental battle, I think, more than anything, to get yourself to a place where you are, you're not just kind of dialed into how hungry am I, how thirsty am I, I'm distracted by that, so all I can think about. You know, you've got a job to do and, and you're on TV doing it live. And so you're very conscious that I, I need to be focused on this. I need to give a good performance. There's no excuses. No one at home knows I'm doing Ramadan. And it should never be an excuse for anything. It should always be something that just goes alongside with your normal living, I think. Um, so, uh, yeah, I did that during uh, Women's World Cup in Vancouver and Confederations Cup in Russia, which, again, was those were ridiculously long nights. I think it, it went dark, gosh, I don't know, 11 p.m. or something. And the sun was coming back up at 2 or 3 in the morning. So you really had a very small window. Um, mm. This summer in Russia, having experienced that last time, I decided that I was actually going to post. You can make up the days at a later date. So that was something that I decided to do. I did the, I think it was two and a half weeks of fasting before I left. So being in in America. And then the next week and a half, which were in Russia, I decided I would make those up when I came back. So I, I did it that way because I just, I did find that that was, incredibly hard to survive and do live television long hours of live television on on what would have been three hours of sustenance that was a, a big ask for me at the time yeah uh, absolutely well i appreciate you answering that thank you that, that's um that's not something i've often talked to. i'm not sure i've talked to any broadcaster about that so i appreciate that i i'm imagining i don't know if the assignment has formally been given but it's very clear you will be there um have you been formally assigned already to the women's world cup in france next year no, I think those decisions haven't been made. And I think, you know, Fox has uh, uh, some big decisions to make in terms of how they how they deal with the load that they have during the summer because they have the Gold Cup as well. And, you know, obviously there's huge interest around the U.S. men's national team and how they fare in that. Um, and so I think they've got to be able to staff two different competitions in two different uh, areas of the world, one in France. One, I imagine they will do based out of the U.S. because it's it's in the you know the U.S. time zone it seems to make sense, um, and so they need to find enough people and enough on-air talent to be able to staff both of those, or a solution to doing it all from one place, I guess, and having a crew that rotates. But um, yeah, uh, I'd love to know what the what the solution will be there, but I'm just not sure right now. Uh, Kate, listen, the 2019 Women's World Cup is in Paris. Would you like me to start basically on Twitter, just pounding your bosses to let you? go there because let's be very honest one assignment is 
ridiculously great, and the other, no offense, is not as great. So uh, let me know, you know, please, please, please uh, email or direct message me if they're giving you a hard time, and I will start that campaign to uh, to get you to Paris. Uh, uh, that's a free one for me. Yeah. All right. So here's the last one I want to do, given that you are a uh, uh, you're fluent in like uh, so many um, different languages. So French, Spanish, German, English. Do you speak Arabic as well, or or uh, or does not count? I don't. I can do my my prayers and, and things like that in Arabic, but I don't speak it. No, the Quran I've read in English. I've not read it in Arabic. Gotcha. Okay. So this is what I want to do. I want to end with your favorite words in each of these languages. So what is your or expression, if it makes life easier for you? What is your favorite word or French word or expression? Oh my gosh. Um, my favorite French word or expression. Um, uh, struggling with this one. I'm trying to think very quickly. Uh, I don't know. Wait, you know, I have... Go on. I was going to say, we could table the French one. I'll, we could start with Spanish or German or English. And one of my favorite, one of the ones that is always stuck in my mind from German, and I don't know why, is um, which is 0815, which, to, I, I, unless it means something to you, I don't know. To, to me, it no. certainly doesn't. Um, it, but for Germans, it means average. So if somebody is very average in what they do or meal is average or whatever it might be is average, it's, it's kind of an insult. It's definitely derogatory. But you say it was Nolak Fumsen, which I just think is is an interesting one because I have no idea where that would have come from. That's interesting. Okay. I've never heard that before. What about uh, Spanish? Uh, Spanish, I don't know. My French one has come to me, uh, which okay, is French. when they tell you to occupe-toi de tes oignons, which is uh, in literally it's, it's keep busy with your own onions but basically means (laughs) mind your own business um i love that yeah so that would be one of my favorites um Uh, all right spanish and english for last uh spanish uh, which was uh i don't know if that's it because obviously there's huge differences between the spanish spanish and the spanish that's more more spoken over here which is more latin american spanish um, but I remember it was one of the mistakes that I made when I was living with a Spanish family and I was reaching into the refrigerator and I wanted to be helpful and pass them milk uh, and ask them which of the milks that they wanted because they had a variety of milks in there. So I asked them, which is a, in fact a very rude way of saying, what on earth do you want from me? Um, but I hadn't realized <laughs> that. And so um, that one has always stuck with me as well. That's good. And Engl- I mean, I, you know, maybe I'll bail you out on English. I mean, that could be... Uh... That could be anything. If, I don't know if you have a for, for, you know, sixes and sevens. I'm trying to think of good English. Uh, <laughs> a good English one. I, I mean, I get inundated in working with Warren Barton, who constantly comes out with um, Cockney slang on the weekends. So there's, uh, there's no shortage of that. I used one yesterday, which I suddenly began to think must be an English phrase. But then I actually just thought that Tim Howard and Moa Do needed to, to perhaps read more books, and they just didn't know the phrase. Because I said there was a pregnant pause. And they both thought ah. that, that was a very strange use of English. But I think it's also accepted in American English. I'm not sure. Of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a good one. That's a good one. And plus, you know, I'm sure as you've now been in the States for a while, you know, whether you hear like, uh, you know, that's dope or uh, mem or whatever, you know, millennial, whatever English word is the hip word of the moment, uh, you're inundated with that. All right. That's good. <laughs> that, this, this, you've, you've, I mean, I've, I've put you to the test. The language test. I know you're out of university, so I appreciate that. Um, all right, kid. I need to take a break because now I have to give your entire resume again. So let's 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 hold on. All right, here we go. Kate Abdo. Kate Abdo is the studio host for Turner, 
and Bleacher Reports UEFA Champions League. She's also the studio host for Fox Sports' soccer program, including the Bundesliga. Um, she has not gotten her assignment yet for the 2019 Women's World Cup, but we'll start that right now. I mean, come on, Eric Shanks and David Neal. Th- this is a no-brainer. Don't, don't, be, don't, be, don't be foolish. Uh, you know where Kate should be. Uh, Kate, listen, it's taken a while to have you on this podcast. I had to go through all your PR people and your multitude of agents, but you are kind enough to finally get this done at the end of October. Um, and thank you very much. I enjoyed this conversation as, a, of a, as I've written. I really admire your work. I think, um, I think you do a really, really good job, and you help educate the U.S. soccer audience, and that's something I greatly respect and appreciate. So thank you very much for coming today on the Sports Media Podcast. Thank you. That means a lot. I appreciate it. All right. My thanks to Kate Abdo for, from uh, Turner Sports and Fox Sports for that conversation. And she's, um, she's had a really interesting career, and as you can tell from that conversation, super smart. And now we move on to someone not as smart, but still one of our favorites, and that is Chad Finn. The, sorry, Chad. The, it's too easy. The, Chad Finn, the fine sports media writer for the Boston Globe, who, Chad, I believe if I'm correct, you are doing this off probably very little sleep. You just got back from California. Uh, I imagine being part of the Red Sox Dodgers coverage. Yeah, not the greatest uh, travel back either, Richard. And I knew you were going to do that with the intro. I could see it coming a mile away. But uh, <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, it was uh, it was a twenty-seven hour trip from when I left oh. the airport to when I get home. So uh, I, you, I can match any of Joe Buck or Kevin Harlan any of those guys' <laughs> stories. Does it, was this a uh, late, like uh, flights delayed, or did you have the did you have to stop in a certain city? Twenty-seven hours to get from the West Coast is crazy. Yeah, it's a little longer than expected. Um, it was uh, two different plane problems, which made me think I should have found another mode of transportation to come home. But uh, <laughs> I, I I stuck with it. Uh, maybe not with that airline going forward. But uh, got back finally at eight a.m. this morning after leaving my hotel in L.A. at four forty-five yesterday morning. Oh, wow. Well, I appreciate very much you doing this, uh, and we will not keep it long. All right, so let's start with baseball. Um, and obviously, this was a major, major story for you and the sports media in the city of Boston. So if you can, Chad, I realize that you're in the middle of this, and obviously this, this is a massive championship for your coverage area. But the fact is the World Series viewership – dropped from last year's Houston Dodgers series, which I have to be honest with you, Chad, really surprised me, just given how strong the Boston market always is for sports. And, you know, again, you have to sort of take Twitter for what it is, but there were some people on there who, you know, when I put that out there, were talked about Red Sox fatigue, talked about that they couldn't really wrap themselves around this World Series because there wasn't like an underdog figure the way there was with the Cubs. Do you have any, and again, the viewership's still really good. I mean, listen, Fox drew 15 million or whatever for the last game. It's going to beat everything else on TV, but it, but it was down. There's no arguing that. And so I wonder, do you have any thoughts as to why the viewership was down from last year? And do you buy into any of the Boston fatigue or something else? Yeah, yeah Boston fatigue is definitely a factor. I mean, this is, uh, what, 11 championships and four major sports since 2001. People are tired of the Patriots. Uh, this, the Red Sox have won four in 15 years. People, they've long ceased being any kind of underdog story. Um, that's definitely a factor, but I, I'm stunned. Not, I, I, can, I can see how they'd be down a little bit uh, just because 
that seems to be the trend. But I'm, I'm somehow much so down. It's 23% over last year over the, the Houston Dodgers series. And, yes, that was a seven-game series. It was a great series. The Astros are kind of a new story. But you, you look at Boston and uh, the Red Sox and the Dodgers, that is a World Series matchup that's never happened before. It's two classic franchises in cities on the opposite coast with really, really good teams and, and compelling stars that, uh, at least in the case of Mookie Betts, is probably a little bit undercovered, especially for a Boston athlete, and yet it didn't resonate. And uh, I heard Rob Manfred on Boston Radio talking about it after games one and two, and he sounded bewildered. And, and basically his defense was, well, we've got to cater to the West Coast a little bit on this, and that's fine, but it it still doesn't solve uh, exactly what went on here. This was a, a, a series that felt like it was going to be a huge win for Fox, and instead they're looking at numbers they had for the Royals-Giants four years ago, and that uh, that must just – even though it was the most watched show on television uh, uh, every night, uh, it's got to stagger them based on just what the ultimate numbers are. Yeah, I'm, I'm with you, and I don't really have – I don't have the perfect uh, – you know, I'm, I, I usually – I, whether I'm right or not, I usually kind of have a feel for as to why something happened, but this one is a little is a little trickier for me because going into the series, I would have thought, listen, classic matchup, Boston, Los Angeles in L.A., which obviously can be a fickle sports town. You had a a team that hadn't won in forever, so you would have thought Dodger fans or at least Los Angeles would have over-indexed. Boston always over-indexed, but you're right. I mean, something. It didn't attract the middle of the country. Um, it is possible that there's just so much news in a polarized nation right now that sports did not necessarily serve as a, um, you know, sort of a distraction harbor. It did go up against some other stuff. Chad, this will be the last one on this. I know you want to get to Smoltz and Buck. The, the rating that turned out, I think, to me to be the best was Game 3. Now, you know, I grew up, a lot of New York uh, sports media writers always sort of lamenting about late start times. It is always nonsense to me. It's like, relax. It's, it's uh, you know, it's it's not a birthright to have games at a certain time. You know, you, you watch it, you watch it. But that game three one, especially the the viewership between 11 and 2, was pretty monstrous. That, so that that was interesting in that people stayed up for that one, but... Um, but I would have expected such a bigger number for Game 5 and a clinching World Series, and it just didn't happen. Yeah, they were waiting to see if Nathan Nivaldi was ever going to come out of the game. <laughs> that's, the, that's what it was here. But, uh, yeah, that was interesting. It's funny because there were games in the uh, ALCS between the Red Sox and, and Astros where uh, the viewership peaked early. If the game ran late, if it was one of the longer games, the viewership peaked an hour or two before the game ended, which to me – is really telling. I don't know how you fix it if you're Major League Baseball because these eight, they had a 1-8-39 start in the ALCS, and, and that's yeah. absurd. But the, the, the eight oh nine start, uh, you can justify because they're trying to make money, and that is their prime time on the East Coast. Uh, if they started at 6 o'clock back here, they're not going to make the kind of money that they would if they started at 8, and that's their rationale. And as frustrating as it is as a baseball fan to say in the sixth inning of a great game, you know what? I, I'm not going to make it. I got to go to sleep right now. It's it's it's, 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 it's uh, too much. This game's dragging. It's going to be four and a half hours. I got to get up, go to work tomorrow. Uh, that stinks. That, that that fans have to do that, and that the younger generation can't stay up as late. But the the reason the networks do it is because uh, follow the money. You know, follow the money, and that's that's not going to change. But 
uh, you look at this this World Series, and it just it, it's so strange to me that it didn't click and it didn't resonate because this was one where it looked like everything was aligned for it to be a really big win for Fox, and instead, whether it's those late starts or other factors, it wasn't. And so maybe this leads to them reconsidering some some things. I I, I don't know how they would ultimately change anything related to the start time because it's not really beneficial for them. But if, if ratings keep dipping in situations where they think they're going to be good, then maybe that's when it, uh, when, when that kind of change comes around and happens. All right. I want to give you the Florence on uh, Joe Buck and John Smoltz. Cause I, 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 I'm almost certain we disagree. I I've written, I think that's an excellent team. Um, I really like them. I, um, Smoltz, as an analyst, I know he talks a lot, but he educates me. I think he says very interesting things, and I think sees the game in a unique way. You know, I'm sort of at this point, uh, sort of on rote with this. Joe Buck has been underrated for a long time as a baseball broadcaster. Yeah. I'm never one who's bashed him. I've been writing it for like 12 years. I feel like more people are now coming around. To my view, I think people reflexively disliked him for a lot of reasons, thought he was too smug. Jack Buck's kid, who got sort of all the privileges early, but he's a great baseball caller. There's just I, I don't know how you can argue against that, but I know some will. But, Chad, from just talking to you um, via email, you are not as big on Smoltz, and I think this is a fair take from the people who I've talked to in Boston and certainly just reading stuff online from Boston. Smoltz's not a very popular figure, among those watching the game from New England, which was interesting to me. So what's your sort of perspective on that? Yeah, well, he was horrible for the 09 Red Sox before he retired, so that didn't get him <laughs> off on a good foot. Uh, he, it, it's, it's not so much that he's unpopular, Richard, although there's been a ton of that, but it, to me it's how quickly it's shifted. I mean, uh, it was two years ago and even last year where people talking about how prescient he was and how great he was at telling you what was going to happen and in this kind of understated sort of professorly way where it was appealing and uh you you really related to his uh his connection to the current game and the, and the modern game and his ability to tell you what the pitcher is doing in this situation what the catcher is looking for here and uh, i think he got really positive reviews and i i know you felt great about him i did too i'm sure we probably talked about it on here before and now it's all I hear for about uh, from people, and it's not just Boston. It's it's uh, various addresses will, will show up in the email box from different places, and they're saying this guy acts like he hates baseball. And uh, I get that to some degree. I hear it a little bit because he's not an analytics guy, and he's very clear about not being an analytics guy. And we had two very analytical baseball teams in the World Series. You look at the way Dave Roberts ran the Dodgers with. Uh, basically two different starting lineups, uh, an entirely platoon roster for the most part. Uh, and, of course, we know that the Red Sox employ Bill James and uh, have been very advanced in in, uh, in their metrics for a long, long time and their approach to metrics. And, and Smoltz kind of got this reputation in this World Series, and I think it's justified as someone who suddenly at 51 years old sounds like a curmudgeon because he spends a lot of time telling you on a broadcast where they really want you to be reminded that baseball is, is uh, great and this is a great series, he keeps telling you what's wrong with baseball in his mind. And that, to me, is a much different guy than what I heard uh, two years ago or even last year when he, he seemed to be kind of this oracle of what was going on on the field. That's interesting. Um, that is something I will sort of pay attention to heading forward. I do like him, and that didn't necessarily change in this World Series, but... Uh, but I appreciate your perspective. Uh, it's it's 
it's uh, I'm glad to hear it. All right, we'll finish up with this. This is basically going to be Chad. This is an, this is our, this is an abbreviated little conversation for us because I have uh, uh, three segments in this podcast. But I did want to talk to you about Monday Night Football and particularly to have you on today because um, as we're taping this, it's the day after the Patriots and Bills played on Monday Night Football. You have seen certainly your share of Patriot games. I've seen my share of <laughs> Bills games. Um, and I didn't watch the entire game. I certainly have watched this crew. I was sort of flipping between the Raptors and Leafs. Big day, big night of sports here in Toronto. You talked to Tessator this week. Yeah. And I think both of us have read a lot of the commentary on this team. And we both have our feelings on this team. As a general rule, uh, when it comes to new broadcast teams, I do like to give them a little bit of a time of sort of before weighing in. I think the easiest thing to do is to have a take after the first game, and um, and it, it's always going to get better and it's going to improve. That said, there is something off with this team, uh, Chad. Yeah. There's, yeah. And what I think it is is that Jason Witten is not a A-level analyst at this point. Will he be one day? I don't know. But at this point, he he is someone who is so new to the booth, who sort of the chemistry is off, I feel like, with his two um, colleagues, that he should be doing a number four or number five game at CBS to get, like, or, a, or Fox or whatever, to get the reps to get to the point where he would be an A-level analyst. And between he and Tessa Torr and Booger McFarland, and the fact that McFarland is not in the booth and in this – sort of contraption, which in itself, even if they have chemistry, he's still not in the booth. There's just something off about that broadcast. I, I'm probably not explaining it great, but there's something off. And I like Tessa Torn, Burger McFarlane individually very much, but right now the booth for me isn't working great. How do you see it? Yeah, we know Tessa Torr is good because we, we've uh, seen him do it on college football and some, some really, really great games. I mean, he had to have it. Uh, had kind of a reputation for getting these crazy games and being able to knock out the calls on them for years. So we know he's a good play-by-play guy, but I think the expectation with him is that they've tried to turn this back into an event. You know, you, you're never going to get Cosell, Meredith, and Gifford uh, in this world, in this uh, the way people consume television now. That's never going to happen again. But it seems like the executives, uh, whether it was at ABC or uh, ESPN now on Monday Night Football still tried to grasp for that. So Dennis Miller obviously being the, the, the major example, but putting Kornheiser in the booth for a while and still feels like they went for that here. Uh, and it's, it's not the right mix if you're going for that, but you have Tessa Torres, as a play-by-play guy, trying to sell it that way a little bit. Uh, he's a little over the top on sort of random calls, like uh, when the Bills came out in the Wildcat last night, uh, uh, it was as if you were calling the Super Bowl, and you don't you don't need that level of enthusiasm. You need enthusiasm, but not that over the top enthusiasm for a October Bills Patriots game. It just it doesn't matter in that sense, and it's not an event like it was 30 years ago. So call it like a regular game. But the real issue is Witten, uh, and it's on ESPN executives, I think, to a large degree. I mean, you you talk to them, and you know what was going on in the process. Uh, when they're trying to find somebody, and they were, they were making the Tony Romo comparison. They wanted, they, they thought they had their own recently retired ex-Dallas Cowboy star who was going to come in and be 
great right away. They told us, they told all of us uh, about how great his audition was and how he blew people away. And uh, now he's on there. And he, I, I, t- I did talk to Tessator this week, and he basically said what you just said, that uh, Witten goes right into the booth in, in this primetime role, and he's not Tony Romo. He doesn't carry uh, that kind of, he doesn't have that kind of personality and uh, he could have benefited as Tessator said from D level games on CBS at one o'clock on a Sunday. And he doesn't have that. The real thing they should be concerned about is I think it's getting worse. I don't think it's getting better. I think last night uh, and I watched it this morning uh, when, when I get back before he came on, I, th- I think last night's broadcast might've been the worst one they've had. Uh, it was not a great game. They've had really good games for the most part. The first six games are really good. It really had some compelling angle. Last night didn't after the Patriots kind of got command. But uh, the chemistry is not getting better. It's, uh, it's, it's, it's as if they all realize that it's not working right now. And that's uh, a very strange thing to see halfway through their first season together. Well, here's the one thing I would say. It's a little bit of a counter to what you would say. They They – they try to sort of cut this fine line, Chad, that they overpraised. Overpraises, that's probably not fair. They praised Witten's audition and yes. talked about his potential. But in talking to executives, and, and Tessa Tor is very clear on this, they all said that it wasn't going to be a finished product week one or week 10 or even this year and that the, they were really making the hire for a couple years out. Now, here's what I would say to that. I think given the product that we've seen, I think – it's 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 very fair to say that it was a mistake to sort of approach it that way in that you had Lewis Riddick or Kurt Warner or some of these other people who could have walked into the booth and really, I think, been a polished analyst mm-hmm. from game one, which I think would have been a really important thing given that as great a college football uh, broadcaster, as great a boxing broadcaster as Joe Testator has been, he is a brand new NFL announcer as is Booger McFarland, excellent college football commentator, but again, all new to him in terms of a national game. And I think to have had somebody in that analyst chair, either like a Warner, who has a lot of game experience and is excellent, or a Riddick, who I would argue I think is the ESPN's best NFL analyst, and I feel like most of the smart marks out there agree with me. I think that yes. would have been I think what we're seeing now is in hindsight that would have been a better choice. Finally, and again, if you want to sort of get into the conspiratorial, conspiratorial arm of this, you know, you do wonder how much of the wit and selection, at least in terms of the back and the in somewhere in the back of the minds for ESPN execs, was about having a standard bear in the NFL, someone who Jerry Jones loves, who's on the media committee, someone who's making, uh, who's a sort of a public face and commitment to ESPN's trying to recalibrate their relationship with the NFL. I mean, Jason Witten is a guy who's never going to criticize the NFL. There's no chance of that. So you almost wonder if that was also part of the equation that they were bringing a guy in, you know, who, like Tessator says, he's Captain America. He's cut right out of the PR uh, firm of the NFL. But I'm not sure that has necessarily been the best for viewers. And so I wonder if that was a factor, too. Again, I think they're going to stick with it, Chad, for another year, at least, or maybe two. But like you, I am... I don't know. I'm very skeptical as for this booth to ever be great. I, I do believe, by the way, if Tessa Torn and McFarlane were just a solo team, I think that would be a better broadcast right now. And put, put McFarlane in the booth rather than his sideline contraption? Yep. I, yeah. I, I, yeah, I mean, I, I know a lot of – I'm not one who 
there's been a lot of people who've written and said that like that's very distracting and it's it's ridiculous that ESPN did that. I mean, it's probably ridiculous for the people who are sitting behind them. I mean, that's ridiculous. Should never. <laughs> it uh, sure it, is. Yeah, you should never like sort of screw with the fans on that. But I, I think McFarland's an interesting guy and and says interesting things. So it doesn't really matter to me where he is. Um, it, it doesn't necessarily matter to me as a viewer where he is. I would say as a viewer though, I do wonder if the broadcast would be better if they were physically next to each other. Even if the technology is so good that it's instantaneous, I, I just I don't know how you can argue against someone who's literally sitting right next to you where you can make eye contact with their eyes. Right. You could see their right. hand gestures. I just, you know, I, I know Tessator wants to be a good soldier here, but I don't know how you can argue against that. I mean, if you are staring at your partner next to you in a booth, the nonverbal communication just has to be better. Right, and they sound like two guys who've never had a significant conversation other than preparing for the broadcast or being on the broadcast. So it doesn't come easy when they're not sitting next to each other because they they don't have that flow of conversation whatsoever. It's stilted, and it's awkward. And uh, Tessator told me he thought last week was uh, was the Falcons Falcons and some lousy team. I can't remember. Oh, the Giants. And uh, he felt like that was their best conversation that they had yet. But maybe that's the kind of thing that comes down the road here if they are around for another year or two or even beyond that. But uh, it's it, it, it's awkward to see them still working out the same kinks eight weeks into the season where you, you, you can listen to the broadcast and you feel like these guys barely know each other still after all this time and all this travel together and uh, obviously all the work that they have to put in to, 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 the, to do their best to make this work. What else... Uh... What else do you want to hit on, Chad, before we get out of here? Anything uh, anything of note come to mind? You want to promote something? Uh, I've got nothing to promote. Um, I wish I, I wish I could think of something to promote, but I'm really bad at that. I just, uh, I'm just i amused at the notion that uh, Boston sports uh, success here is now having an impact on national <laughs> ratings because people are – People are so sick of uh, sick of seeing these teams, but I, I, I completely understand it, and I, I think there's complete relevance there. I mean, I don't know what the effect would be if uh, on the on the chance, and and uh, it's it's a still it's a it's a decent chance the Patriots get back to the Super Bowl this year. Whether that would have any impact, but I do think I, I guess you have to consider that a factor in what happened with the World Series because I, you know, Richard, I, Richard, I was just. I'm dumbfounded how much the ratings fell over last year uh, because to me this, you know, I'm, I'm in my forties. This was a matchup that I would have killed to see when I was a kid. And, and, and maybe that's part of the problem is that um, they've lost the, they've lost so much of their young audience that uh, even these classics or perceived classic sort of matchups aren't going to, aren't going to connect anymore. Yeah. The one thing is, I mean, at least with the new England thing, it, even though the numbers were down, you always got to keep in mind the base is always going to be high. It's always going to be coming from a high place because it's still going to draw more than, uh, you know, the Celtics Golden State is still always going to draw more than San Antonio versus Detroit or whatever. So Boston's always going right. to bring a large audience. But like you, yeah, I, I was also surprised because we're so used to monster numbers when a Boston-based team is in there. And so that was a little bit surprising. Chad Finn is the sports media writer for the Boston Globe, coming on this podcast today with essentially no sleep after, as he said, a 27-hour <laughs> trip 
from California. Chad, uh, get some sleep. I appreciate you doing this, uh, as always, and I am sure I will talk to you soon. Hey, it's always good talking to you, Artie. All right, and uh, we go from Chad Finn, and I really appreciate him coming on uh, with really, as he said, no sleep after covering the World Series, to Mitch Album, the Detroit Free Press sports columnist, as well as one of the hosts of Cadence 13's The Sports Reporters. Mitch Album is, of course, a many times best-selling author, as well as a columnist for the Detroit Free Press. He's also one of the hosts of the Sports Reporters podcast, which is produced by the same company that does this podcast. His current book is The Next Person You Meet in Heaven. That is a sequel to the bestseller, The Five People You Meet in Heaven. And Mitch Allen was also a guest on my Sports Illustrated podcast back in August 2017, if you want to check that out. And Mitch Allen joins us on the Sports Media Podcast. Mitch, good to talk to you again. Yeah, Richard, good to talk to you too. Mitch, what are the challenges, if that's indeed the right word, challenges, of bouncing from fiction to nonfiction, from sports writing to non-sports writing? Huh. Well, the sports writing uh, transfer uh, was probably the most difficult, and that happened for me 20-plus years ago already. Uh, Tuesdays with Maury was a book that I only wrote to pay my old professor's medical bills, and... Uh, I had never written anything like that before. I had written a couple of sports books that had done well. And when I found out how in debt he was for you know dying from Lou Gehrig's disease and he didn't have the money to pay it, I went around New York to see if I could get a publisher interested in, you know, not, we were not a lot of money, but enough to pay his bills, uh, a book about an old man talking to a young man about what's important in life when you know you're going to die. And I was turned away by almost everybody. And there was a lot of exactly what you're sort of hinting at. You're a sports writer. You can't write that kind of book. Nobody's going to believe you. You're, it's depressing. Uh, you don't have an experience doing that kind of thing. And, and honestly, Richard, if it had been a project that I had just sort of come up with for my own idea or career, I would have given up. That's how many times I was rejected and turned away. But because it was for somebody else, I couldn't really give up until I tried everywhere. And I found somebody about a month before Maury died. And uh, they were willing to give us the money up front, which I gave to Maury. And I wrote that book thinking that I was going to go back to sports writing, to be honest with you. I thought, well, all right, you know, nobody will really read this. It'll be a little small book. But I did what I wanted to do. And then I'll go back to sports writing. And um, really, it wasn't me transitioning into that type of book. It was the world. Uh, because as that started to get bigger and bigger and bigger and more and more people read Tuesdays with Maury. The conversations that I began to have with people weren't about sports. They were about, uh, you know, my, my sister just died of cancer and the last thing we did was read Tuesdays with Maury together. Can I talk to you about her? And it just started to dwarf all of the sports uh, interactions that I had and eventually kind of dwarfed where my priorities were. And six years later, I, I wrote my first novel, mostly because I was sort of shell-shocked by writing nonfiction. I, I knew I couldn't come up with anything that was going to compare to Tuesdays with Maury, despite the fact that most publishers wanted me to write Wednesdays with Maury. And uh, so I wrote a book that was, you know, in the kind of similar vein in terms of what's important in life and, you know, but more of a fable. And I did a novel. And from that point on, honestly, Richard, I, I, I never considered another sports book. I, I don't think I'll ever write another sports book. Um, it just didn't seem to be how I wanted to spend my time, given how long it takes to write a book. Mitch, um, you know, you've had a one in a million 
kind of career. Um, so when you're deciding to write the next person you meet in heaven, do you, do you have the same insecurities that a first-time author would? Or after you have a certain amount of success in the book writing world, does that, you know, whatever, whether it's insecurities or worry or whatever, does that go away? Does that fade? That's a good question. Um, I think if you're oriented towards insecurities, you're going to have them no matter what. It's the reason why, you know, actors who win Oscars and make $20 million a movie nervously sweat out the box office of, of the next movie they make when you want to say, well, what are you worried about? Everybody can worry about something. I, I wasn't ever that insecure to begin with. You know, I had kind of done, I'd already failed. I wanted to be a musician and I, I failed at that. That was my first love. And that taught me a lot early in my life that, you know, you can fail at something and still be fine. And, uh, you know, I managed to bounce into a different career and a different part of life and, and have loved it. Uh, so I'm not as insecure going into anything probably as I would be if I hadn't failed at, at music and kind of had my hat handed to me on something that was really important to me. And I think to be truthful answering your question, at the beginning when you publish a book, you wonder if your book is going to do well enough that they'll allow you to do another one. That's your biggest thing. It's like, well, if this book doesn't succeed, nobody will want me to write a book again. And I can't honestly say that I'm worried about that anymore. I think, you know, even if the next book I put out sold four copies, I'd probably be able to find somebody who wanted me to write another one. Then it just becomes about money, and you know, or, or exposure. Will you get paid as much to do a book or something like that? And I, you know, knock wood, I'm knocking. I've, I, I've you know, I have enough to take care of all the important things in my life and have had for a while. So that doesn't shake me up too much either. Mitch, how much does a sporting event still interest you as a writer? It has to be a uh, significant one with significant overtones. I, I'm, I, I can't really get into a uh, Wednesday, Wednesday night baseball game in, in July or a, a hockey game in January. It doesn't mean I, I, you know, I would dislike being at it, but you know, I used to, I used to analyze every game that I watched and try to see it in the course of the season. And, I, I, I'm just, I've been through too much and seen too many games for that to matter. But a playoff game, a big playoff game, uh, a, a big rivalry game, you know, I was at the Michigan-Michigan State game the other week, and, you know, I've seen a million of those, and they're still fun, uh, you know, because they just matter so much. So if there's implications and things that matter, then, yeah, I can get into them. Do you, um, how much flexibility do you have in terms of, uh, let's say at the free press, if there's something that you want to cover or go to away from Detroit, are they, do they give you the, the flexibility and the freedom to do that? Or yeah. are you pretty much at this point doing local stuff? No, if I wanted to, uh, I think they would. I, I, most of my career uh, there, the most notable stuff that I, I think I've done has often been far away from Detroit. Uh, I did a series on the Iditarod where I followed that for several weeks, and the whole race, and it was probably the most popular thing I've ever written in Detroit, and it was about Alaska. Uh, and I've I've done things like running with the Bulls in Pamplona, and I did a series of sort of adventure sports all over the world. And, um, you know, I, I think if I asked and, and wanted to go do something, and I've done stories from East Germany when there was an East Germany and Soviet Russia when there was a Soviet Russia. And, uh, you know, if, if there was something like that now, they probably would – 
justify it, although newspapers' budgets now, as you know well, are, are minuscule compared to what they used to be. But I also have spent a lot of time finding stories right in our backyard and, 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 and not common stories. You know, I, I did a series for years called Dreams Deferred, which was uh, usually three stories. You used to run it around Christmas of um, something in the sports world that you never heard of, usually high school or small college kids or whatever who endured something. It could be a you know, addictions or deaths or, or tragedies or things like that. But they were always, you know, stories you never heard of. And they were right in our own backyard. And, uh, you know, I, so you don't have to travel far here in Detroit to find poignant sports stories that aren't about Miguel Cabrera or, or uh, you know, Andre Drummond. This is something I wanted to ask you when I knew uh, you were going to come on, is how did writing fiction impact how you per- how you were perceived in the sports media, and then how do you think sports fans uh, read your fiction? I don't really know. Um, you know, it's hard to discern who's a sports fan and who's a not a sports fan when people are buying your books or reading your books. Um, I can't say within the industry. I, I don't really know. I I, I I confess to not being a very good. Uh, you know, participant in the non-press box life of a sports writer. I, I had to make a decision early on in my life that, uh, you know, I was either going to be the guy who hung around after the games were over in the media lounges and went out drinking uh, with the guys, which, you know, still something that, that guys do, used to do it more, uh, and, and stayed over to get my Marriott points uh, and things like that. Or was I going to rush home to be with my wife? And I made that decision early on, and uh, you know I've been married 23 years, and so I have always sort of left as quickly as I can and get in as late as I can to events. So I'm not a very good. I don't have much perception of how I'm perceived in within the industry because I I, I'm, I kind of sh- go to the games or go to the practices, and then I'm I'm kind of gone, or, and a lot of times I'm involved in other things, be they books or movies or charity work, which dominates most, you know, probably 60% of my life now. So um, I couldn't tell you in the industry. And I, I, you know, the closest I guess I can say is that the people will come up like I'm on a book tour for the next person you meet in heaven now. And so I'm meeting a lot of people and, and uh, women will come up and say, you know, um, I love your books. My husband loves you on the sports reporters, you know, or a guy will come up and say, you know, I like your books. My wife likes it on the sports reporters. I mean, I'm aware that there's a dichotomy with me that that some people who know me or even know me well have never witnessed or participated in a whole portion of my career. You know what I mean? Like there there are people who know me for sports who have never read a single book that I've written. And there are people who have read all of my, you know, non-sports related books and don't have a clue that I work in the sports world or came from the sports world. And if I go overseas, it's really pronounced because, you know, they don't really care about sports over there. And they, they, they're astonished to find out that I ever worked as a sports writer at all, let alone that I continue to do so. So, you know, other than being aware that there's a, a lot of different categories of me, I, I don't really know how, that, how it's perceived. What, uh, what sports figure in the Detroit area today do you find – particularly compelling and why right now in Detroit yeah uh, Michigan area doesn't well uh, Jim Harbaugh is fascinating to me I've known him since he was Jimmy Harbaugh 
Uh, he was the first quarterback I think I covered when I got to Detroit, and he was playing for Bo Schembechler. And he's quixotic and, and unusual and interesting, you know. Uh, uh, you never know what's going to come out of his mouth or his program. Um, I find uh, Miguel Cabrera an, an interesting character, although I rarely talk to him. He rarely talks to anybody. Uh, but he's got he's got such a sort of bigger-than-life reputation on the baseball field and yet everybody says he's like a child off the field and then he's got a lot of off-field issues too uh but he's again interesting john beeline is a guy who's very interesting and 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 compelling in ways that a lot of people don't know and his history and and his uh his approach to college sports i like very much um you know the Lions have a handful of guys who are who are interesting. Matthew Stafford is I know pretty well, and uh, I think I keep waiting for him to become the big big thing that I think his talent would allow him to be. But circumstances here, it's a little you know you play for the Lions. It's a little bit like being Jimmy Stewart, and it's a wonderful life. You know you just keep wondering why you can't get <laughs> you just can't get to the big city, or you just can't. You know, everything keeps repeating itself, and uh, he's already 10 years in here. He's really he's the most talented quarterback the Lions have ever had, and yet, you know, you can start to see the years peeling off with him not achieving a championship. Um, you know, those are the first names that come to mind. Do you miss being on ESPN, yeah. uh, Weekly Mission? I, I, I don't miss being on ESPN. I miss the sports reporter's TV show uh, because there was a sense of uh, – national community with that show and i cannot tell you richard how many people when i'm on this book tour are saying to me why is the sports reporters not on the air what happened to the sports reporters? it was part of my sunday routine you know i would every and it was you know that's what was I, I think a big part of the success or draw or appeal of the sports reporters was when it was on uh you know it wouldn't have been the same if it was a tuesday night show not at all even if it ran for 28 years it still wouldn't have been the same it's it's the same reason that sunday newspapers get read differently than saturday newspapers why they're both newspapers you know they're they're both telling you what happened uh the the day before for the most part and they used to have both have like big sections special sections on entertainment or things like that but it's now just become because saturdays everybody's running around where sunday's like the only day left that people can sort of collectively read a newspaper and you kind of get the sense while you're reading it someone else is reading it across town and someone else is reading it across the country the sports reporters was the same way you sort of got up on sunday and we would hear stories either I watch you, and then I w and then I was late for church, or I rushed back from church so that I could watch you, or something like that, and or I'd eat my breakfast while the sports reporters were on. So I miss being part of a routine in people's lives. It's it it, it kind of shrunk the country down to a half an hour a week for us, and wherever I went in the country, I would, you know, kind of know people, or people would want to talk sports with me or something. I said because they saw that show. I will say that probably at least thirty percent of the people that are out there still think the show is on <laughs> and I go I love you on the sports reporters and I don't have the heart to tell them that you know we haven't haven't been on for almost <laughs> two years but uh, you know are you uh are you surprised that or, or maybe you guys made the offer that that another network didn't pick it up the concept uh obviously you can't duplicate uh you know John Saunders or, yeah. or Jeremy Schapp or an ESPN person but you know th in theory the concept could work if all of you guys um 
or at least the ones who are not attached to ESPN, could have gone somewhere. Yeah, it, it could. Uh, not, I don't think any. Well, maybe Bob is attached to ESPN tangentially. He does a show, but yeah. Mike and I are not. Uh, never were in terms of. Uh, well, I don't know what Mike's. I, guess I shouldn't speak for Mike, but I was able to do anything that I wanted to. Besides that, I had I, my dealings with ESPN were just for that show. But um, am I surprised no one picked it up? Well, first of all, it didn't have a host when we ended. I think if we had had, if John had still been there and uh, and and they had dropped the show, it might have been easier to sort of pick up as a package if John was available. Uh, but the other thing is, I think what people. Um, probably figured is what makes it work is the time slot and if you look at a lot of the other networks certainly the you know bigger networks they're kind of booked up in those slots they have national uh, shows you know media shows and things like that 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 they're committed to political shows that they're committed to and it, it would it would be a little weird to just sort of shove in the sports reporters and the, the truth is there aren't a whole lot of alternatives to ESPN for a national show I guess Fox Sports one, uh, you know, maybe NBC Sports One if they they do that, but most of them uh, also, when it comes to football season, they're kind of committed for Sunday mornings, and they don't have, unlike ESPN, they don't have ten networks that they could pick from. I always thought that. Well, I don't really know why we were we were uh, let you know dropped. Uh, you'd have to ask John Skipper, and he's not there anymore. So um, I think it, it was a combination of things and 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 sort of a mood of espn at that moment i still don't understand why they didn't just say all right we're just going to put the show on espn 2 permanently so we can make room for what we want on espn 1 and that would have been fine by by us i mean they do have spare networks you know or espn news i don't just didn't see a reason why it needed to go away because from what i understand it was doing well and it had sponsors and all that so the, the normal things weren't in play but i i you'd have to ask the people who made the, that decision i don't know um, all right, the final place I want to go with you, Mitch, is what do you um, – I, I want to ask you about um, sort of the newspaper sports section of today. It's been such a big part of your life um, in addition, obviously, to the books that you've done. And we see across the country, we see uh, sports departments cutting staff. We see certainly less pages in the printed version. Obviously, these places are trying to figure out how to make money – digitally but you can't make the same money digitally obviously as you did before when it comes to the printed product um what do you what what do you how do i sort of phrase this are are you how confident are you that the newspaper sports section has a future in print and if it doesn't have a future in print would you are you as optimistic of a newspaper sports section digitally as you probably were when you first entered this business so many years ago? Well, I don't think that the actual piece of paper, the newsprint paper, has much of a future. Uh, I think people my age are nostalgic for that, and we like the tactile nature of a newspaper, and we like to hold the sports section and read it. So we're always going to feel like, well, the, how could this ever go away? Uh, but... Young people are not like that. Young people don't touch newsprint and, and, and feel nostalgic. Young people probably don't even like it because it takes up too much. They can't fit in their pocket, you know, and, and they, they, like, they like the whole world to fit in their pocket or fit on their device. So I don't think there's much of a future long term for print. And I think eventually, with the exception of maybe, you know, a couple of national newspapers, 
uh, New York Times or USA Today or Wall Street Journal, things like that. There's going to be many of them left in that form. As far as the sports section, though, because sports is still eminently local, you know, I think there will always be some kind of local sports section. Now, I don't know if it'll be under an umbrella of uh, of a um, newspaper. I wouldn't be surprised if somebody started establishing just sport digital sports newspapers locally and dropped all the news. You know, because the the the, the news is taken care of kind of separately now, and and uh, you know, national news kind of dominates in a different way than national sports necessarily does because you know there's only one president so if you want to cover what's going on with the president you can watch cnn and see what's going on with the president you don't don't need the detroit free press to tell you what's going on with the president but sports are a collection of teams in different cities and you're not going to go to espn or anybody else like that to find out everything you want to know about the detroit lions there's got to be a local version of that and so I, I do think that there's a future for local sports sections. It could be digitally, it could be whatever, uh, but I don't think that's ever going to go away. I think people in Detroit, people in Seattle, people in Cleveland, people in Dallas, they want to get up and, and read about their teams more than they want to read about every single team, uh, more than they want to read about you know the, the big Sunday night football game that might be huge to Green Bay or, or Los Angeles, but your Cleveland team didn't play in it. So you don't want to, that's not what you want to spend your time reading about. And that's why sports radio works much better locally than it does nationally. You know, how long have they tried, how long has ESPN been doing sports, national sports radio and other, you know, Westwood One and other things. And I'm sure that there's some success to it, but never as much as the local afternoon show, right? Uh, the local sports afternoon show talks about the local sports. Angelo Cataldi in Philadelphia talks about the Eagles, you know, and uh, I was just on his show and it's, it's massively listened to. I mean, wherever you go, everyone's talking about what he said on the radio about the Eagles and not what ESPN said about the Eagles or what, you know, the New York Times might have said about the Eagles. So, yeah, I think locally there's always going to be a, a need. I just don't know what form it'll take. Mitch Album is the author of The Next Person You Meet in Heaven, which is the sequel to the bestseller, The Five People You Meet in Heaven. You can also obviously catch all his work at the Detroit Free Press, as well as the uh, Sports Reports podcast produced by Cadence 13. Uh, Mitch, it's uh, good to catch up with you again, and I wish you nothing but the best of luck on your book tour. Thanks, Richard. Appreciate it. All right, back in the studio. We'll do this quick. My thanks to um, three guests today, Kate Abdow. Uh Chad Finn and Mitch Ablam. Uh, I appreciate their time and their insights. Previous podcasts, if you want to catch up, uh, Rachel Nichols and Candace Parker, Jamel Hill, Chris Haynes, Renee Young. Last week, uh, John Oran came on to talk about NFL ratings, which are uh, surprisingly up this year from what I think uh, a lot of people expected. And if this is the kind of content you like, I hope you do, please go to the Sports Media with Richard Deitch page on Apple podcast leave us a review and a rating and that is how this podcast stays on for my producer lou pellegrino for cadence 13 this is richard deitch we'll see you again on the sports media podcast